Dan, this is this is fun for me because I'm I'm coming off of a week of just listening to your voice nonstop whenever I'm doing dishes and stuff like that. Because I wanted to prep. Voice. Yeah, well, honestly, like honestly, after listening through uh, is for everyone, like listening to you narrate it, I do feel like I can honestly give a real plug, even for anybody who already has the the physical book. Um, if for no other reason than because listening to your reading of it, we get to hear your voice work. Anytime there's like a stuffy museum curator or or like old military instructor or anything like that, you do their voice, and it's pretty fun. Man, I want to. Yeah, I, I haven't listened. Stuff during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. it's it's worthwhile. <laughs> Better than my audiobook, then, uh, Jim. I, that's I'm, that's yeah. You put mine on I am double speed and just tried to get through it in one afternoon. You listen to yeah, Dan I sl- all week. I slowed Dan's down because I was enjoying it so much. Oh. Story uh, of my did life. Did you know there's an interesting thing? Because like uh, until the pandemic, I never really listened to an audiobook book at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I found a bunch of, I'll be honest, Warhammer Forty Thousand stuff. Like I, I do nice. love a bit of sci-fi, right? And it is particularly bonkers sci-fi. Um, mm-hmm. And I was listening to a bunch of this stuff just on YouTube, and I was like blown away by how good it was, like how much of a performance in there. So whenever I came to do my own audiobook, which to be honest, I never really thought about doing until I heard that Bruce was putting one out for his book. And I was like, oh yeah, that's a total thing you can do. Why Why would you not be able to do that for this? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but when it came to things like, like I do a voice for Angus Mackay and, and things like that, and to be honest, the whole project runs off the back of, like, why does Peabrook have to be painful? Why is the whole thing, like, like a labour of love is one thing, but pure attrition is uh, bogus, I think, actually, totally bogus. Uh, and when you look at the people uh, that that I speak about in the book, the, the, the so the book is a, um, a social and cultural history rather than, like, a pure study of musicology, because I felt like a study of musicology... Like, if you look at what Andrew Wright or Jimmy McIntosh wrote, they, there's fantastic studies in it. And, I mean, I don't think they'll ever get the academic appreciation that they probably deserve, but um, that's a whole other gripe, if I'm perfectly honest with you. But yeah, it, it's like, why, why can't this be enjoyable? Like, there are things in this music that, that are enjoyable, you know? The duration's probably not that enjoyable for, for most people, seen as, like, most people... You like sit and watch TV with your spouse while you look at your phone, so you'll have like two things attracting your attention. So asking someone to sit for fifteen minutes and listen to one performer play one piece without doing anything else can be a little bit of a a learning curve, I think. Yeah. Right. yeah I mean, tell me if you think this is um. <clears throat> oh, go ahead, Andrew. I was just, I was just gonna say uh, I I guess I I wasn't gonna say anything. Jim, go ahead. I'm just curious if, uh, if Dan, if to you it's any kind of, um, uh, I don't know, uh, heresy of any kind that for me, like I'm, I'm very much a Peabrook outsider, you know, like I'm, I'm trying to get into it, you know, but like this is very much, I'm, I'm dipping the toe here. And for me, like the most enjoyable performance for me that I've gone back to several times was one that um, Murray Henderson did with string accompaniment. Mm-hmm. Right, so you had a string a quart- a string quartet, yeah, and and that for me, like I tried to listen to Peabrook before that solo, and I couldn't get the vision. And when I brought in more elements like that, then I could go like, oh, okay, yeah, I dig this. 
So is that is am I not is my palate not refined enough yet? Or you know, is that a good gateway to get to to pure pre Peabrook? You know what I mean? I, I think that is an excellent gateway, and uh, the the um the unsung hero of that performance, that arrangement, is a guy called James Fairley, who is the bass player. Right, he plays the the upright bass. Oh really? And, and he worked with John and Callum and Murray to arrange the string parts. Um, the mm. James Lindsay, sorry, not James Fairley. <laughs> James Lindsay, yeah. uh, who was a year below me at the University of Strathclyde's BA in Applied Music, and and James is recognisable to any trad fans. He plays in Brayback. He play, plays for everybody, right? That's how the trad scene works. Um, but he's, he's an incredible musician uh, all round. But what he managed to do, and I, you know, I've never spoken to him about this, and I should probably ask him. Well, it's quite a while ago now is that uh, he managed to pull out the music, the things that I think uh, expert master Peabrook players like Murray Henderson acknowledge. So he's used the accompaniment to pull out, like, uh, you know, in Lord Lovers Lament, it's a, a, an even meter tune, it's a 4-4 four, four tune, so that strong, medium, medium, strong sound. You know, the, if you were to sing those phrases, chiri and ee oh chiri and ee you would naturally be louder and quieter. The bagpipes mm-hmm. do that. They're a two-dimensional mm-hmm. instrument. But strings do that. And by using the various voices along the, the various voices in the, the arrangement, you can pull out that sort of stuff. And I think it's a wonderful um, gateway drug, really. But Mm-hmm. You're what you say. You've got to dip your toe in. That 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 is the thing. Like what I often say to pipers who ask me about playing Peabrook is, it is as much for you as it is for anyone else. If you've ever picked up the instrument, well, it's absolutely the it's music designed for this instrument. We're not imitating anything else on it. This is bagpipe music, real bagpipe mm-hmm. music, or the bagpipe. Um, it's not songs or you know other instruments. Uh, inst- uh, music tradition it's our music tradition um and that works two ways right that's it can be shared it can be taken away i mean i find myself now working reasonably seriously on a second book um and going like <laughs> like why <laughs> why are these things the why are things the way they are why do we do things the way we do them um yeah. so how do we it's do that existential crisis book so so dan like walk walk us through some of the like a lot of our listeners are not familiar with Peabrock at all, so you know they're just sort of thinking about, kind of wondering what it is. So walk us through what we do currently, and then, uh, and then let us know some of the things that you're wondering about because I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I guess like well, what is Peabrock, right? <clears throat> theme and variation music. <clears throat> now theme and variation music's an incredibly old concept. Um, you, you can trace the, the very roots of music from the first time that human beings managed to find an area where a food source naturally grew or you know, a, a, huntable animals would um, make their home. By the time that we invented free time uh, and someone stood up and was like, what's the deal with buffaloes? Uh, we tried to find the entertainment. And a lot of kind of call and response music would have been developed. And those are ideas that, that come through. You know, like if you think of um, pop music choruses, for example, you know, 
how many pieces can you think of off the top of your head where there'll be a phrase at the end of the verse that becomes the phrase of the chorus? That's mm -hmm. a, a common response, a variated idea. And that's all that Beavrick really is, theme and variation. Um, <clears throat> the original themes, the grounds, the urlas, um, that's all Urla means, by the way, is, uh, to anybody at home wondering what I've just said. I've not just tripped over my tongue, it's uh, Gaelic for ground or floor. So it's the ground floor of the tune, right, is, is, is your Urla. Um, those, those melodies, there's, there's, a lot of, well, there's a lot of different ones. We probably have in our, I think Andrew will agree with me when I say competitive canon of Peabrook, maybe 300 tunes, right, so... That's a lot of music when you think about it. You know, it, it's uh, the, I mean, the, the light music outstrips that by tens mm -hmm. of thousands, right? An mm -hmm. incredible amount of light music. But when it comes to to Peabrook, um, we're talking about three hundred pieces collected by the Peabrook Society, which is its own thing. Worth a Google, the Peabrook Society, very interesting, and the the Kilbury Book of Kilmore. So between between those two sources, you'll get all the Peabrook you could ever play in your lifetime. Um, but then you come back to right. Well, we've got theme and variation. We we know where to get it from. What else is included? Well, those variations become sections. So we have our earlier, our opening section, our ground floor, where the theme ideas will pop up. I just like to throw something in here as well. Uh, the word that pipers use a lot to describe um, melody note inside of a melody is themal. Right? Themal is not a word. <laughs> it's theme <laughs> or melody. It does my goat, um, what do you call it, to, to, when pipers do all sorts of uh, bagpipey words, um, for example, McLeod's controversy, controversy, <laughs> doesn't Neil Brown sit like that? Um, <laughs> Aluminium. There's another. Sorry, I'll just move on from that. I was um, going to say that feels that feels almost like a which side of the pond are you from kind of pronunciation yeah. choice. I know it, it just sounds good. McLeod's controversy sounds a lot better than controversy. Yeah, whatever. It's uh, Marquis of Argyll, Marquis, right? Mm. Anyway, right. That's near here or there. That's that's just a little gripe. Um, yeah. So the the variations. The next the next sections are uh, standardized. So, I mean, I've got my practice channel here. This is probably the easiest way of getting the idea across, right? Mm -hmm. So, if we're talking about uh, our G-ish variations, right? So, you get the G-ish and the Shul. Um, G-ish variations are like heartbeats. Okay. I'm sure that'll do wonders for the, um, for the, the sound levels on this. So, something like... Um, like the, the first line of a G-ish variation. Uh, and then you've got the, the shul. Now the big idea of the shul is to reverse it. So instead of having long note, short note, you have short note, long note. Hando, hando. So you'd have like, try, try to remember one now. along those lines, right? I'm, I'm kind of pulling that out of my ear there, but the reversal of it. And what's interesting is 
I'm sure Andrew will agree with me that the, the, the magic, the blast of Peabrook is often found uh, beyond the sheet music. So the egogic stress of it all. You know, like <clears throat> when I played that G-ish, uh, it's the first line of the um, the G-ish in the unjust incarceration. Uh, and I'm trying to put a bit of weight on the third pulse of every bar. There's three pulses in the bar, third pulse of the bar, put a little weight on it. Or I'm attempting to anyway. Um, and it just highlights the melody a little bit. It's, it's, it's what William McCallum calls an awareness. If you are aware of that note in the phrase, then it tends to be enough for the audience to be aware of it. Um, I think it kind of leads me into something... Well, I'll come back to it, right? I'll explain the next bit. So you've got your first variations there, your G-ish and your show. Then you get into your, what I would call the, the Lemlua family. Okay, so a Lemlua is a grip. Lem meaning uh, leap or jump, uh, and Lua being a generic word for movement, right? So the jumping movement. So, um, so you and Cameron of Rock Hills salute, right? One of the silver medal chains this year. So that's, that's a, a Lemlua variation. We do a, a doubling of it with those little cadences, we get rid of those. Um, then all we're doing there is in a Tula variation, same idea. We're replacing the Lem Lua with a Tor Lua. Then the doubling again, we remove the cadence until we get to a uh, Kuhnla variation. So, uh, so I should have said a Tourla uh, is a twirling or twisting movement. Then a Kuhnla is the crown, okay, the crowning movement, the big finish. Okay. Do your doubling of that where you take out the cadences. And that's just a sort of generic P book, I'd say. That there are variations on the Krumla movement. There's a Braybach variations, the back of the hill, uh, the Fiscalcia, the open Krumla, and you've got your Krumla Mach. And Krumla Mach is Krumla to exit. Um, if you ever find yourself in the Western Isles, you'll see lots of signs that say Amach, and that's what it means, exit. Okay. Does, uh, uh, Dan, is this is this like an overly ignorant thing for me to say? Like, let me know if it is, but I'm just, again, as like the piper who like wants to get into Peabrook, but hasn't been able, hasn't yet, you know, it where you're describing like the ground movement, and like so many of these terms are things that I've heard, right? Like you hear these things as an unaware piper, right? Like I hear people talk about these things and I kind of go like, hmm, I should know about that, but I don't, you know? But as you describe like the ground and then this thing that builds on it and this thing that builds on it and it gets eventually to a crown, I can't help thinking to myself of Pachelbel's Canon, which I think is a, a song that a lot of people are aware of, right? It's like, it opens with just like, do, 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 do. And really, that's the whole thing. 
every every everything for the whole rest of the time you're listening to that tune is that with additional things building on top of it until it gets so big that it finishes is that is that kind of the feel very much yeah and i think well well one thing i say is, is this right you're a normal piper jim right and i'd like you, to think so <laughs> we're freaks we're not normal right <laughs> we're bizarre creatures that like for whatever reason have been like soul bound to these damn things um and we love it and we want everybody else to to love it too Right, that, that's that's the nature of being a painting professional. Be a professional, anything. So see that, like you're not ignorant in having those thoughts. Is is you're in fact very bold because the vast majority of pipers that you've probably met across your career of playing pipes, no hee haw, nothing about Peabrick at all, and that's no detriment to them. That is the nature of it. See until the nineteen twenties, most pipers, and the few that there were, knew nothing about Peabrick. There was a select handful. Um, it's funny, I'm on the Competing Pipers Association board, the committee, and um, which doesn't really mean much, right? Uh, but you know, we, we often get in all this data about you know who's going around the games and, oh, Akin Shugal Highland Games, only seven folk played in the Peabrick. Well, see, in 1912, five folk played in the Peabrick. There weren't that yes. many folk out playing. You know, there never has been. There's more now than there ever has been. Okay? Mm. Um, that's globally. You know, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, somebody will give you some sort of bit of Peabrook that they've picked up from somewhere. It's very, it's good days for Peabrook, frankly. Anyway, um, so the, the thing in there is, yes, there is a relationship there. What is that relationship? Good noises are good noises, is the first thing. You know, if we're talking about composers who were living in the Western Isles 500 years ago, they've got not a lot of day-to-day difference with composers who were living in Central Europe 500 years ago. Now, the big difference is resource. There's more people. So if you look at like the works of Johann Sebastian Bach, who, interestingly, the guy that killed Haydn was also the guy that killed Bach. That's not a joke. That's, there's no punchline there. That's the same guy. It's a surgeon, a terrible surgeon. Did eye surgery on both of them, killed them, so indeed. But there's also a, a conspiracy theory that that guy owed a lot of money to somebody that Bach owed a lot of money to. There you go. Right, there's there's a lovely sort of idea for I don't know a, a kind of I've, yeah. Group. I've got something to Google later. My goodness. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's very useful. Anyway, but the, the thing about it is, you know, these musical ideas are very very natural. Start off low, finish complicated. Right, we think yeah. up to a big thing. Right, the the snowball effect, if you want, the, the avalanche. Um, if you look at like the Bach's fugues, for example, they all kind of go that way. You can go across mm. the entirety of human art. And find that. Um, I, I think was was in, but if, if we kind of match up with, um, of course, all art goes in fashions, right? So there are, there are Peabricks that I think, like the McCrimmon tunes, which are probably the cornerstone of Peabrick performance. You know, like I, I, I've never, like I've never met a piper who played Peabrick regularly who was like brought up on say, um, just. Ian Dal Mackay tunes and 20th century tunes. You're like, we all will know the group, the King's Taxes, McCrimmon's Sweetheart, like, we'll have some sort of knowledge of them, even if we don't necessarily have them catalogued in our head, but we'll have an idea of, like, that is the structure that, you know, I'm, I'm going to say Patrick Moore McCrimmon would have laid down, you know, in, in you know, the, the 17th century, very likely when that all came together. 
And it's not as if these guys were listening to lots and lots of recorded music or, or going to concert halls, but those base yeah, ideas sure. of start small, get bigger, that's, that's part of being human. The difference was that, like, you know, like taking um, Haydn as an example, as a, as a, a composer of, of string quartets, um, he found a niche that was, that was useful. So he could take a string quartet, four voices, low to high, and create pieces... Um, that would be suitable for somebody to play in, like, the big dining room of the Prince of Vienna's palace for, like, a small group of guests. Whereas, for Pipers, we would be, um, you'd maybe have one or two in the local area, you know, like the McCrimmons of Sky being a very important group because they actively taught. So they would have a handful of kids learning how to play, up to maybe kind of, let's call them mid-teenagers. You know, the most famous of these guys are probably like Charles MacArthur, who's there for 12 years. Most folk got out of Dodge after, pardon me, after seven. Um, but like, they would be able to go, right, we have a master player who will come to Castledon Vegan and play for um, the Mackays of Gearlock have come to visit. So this this home entertainment system will put on a show for us. And I think that the big kind of mistake that, the man in the street makes is to think that Peabrook and Peabrook playing was and is separate from the musicianship of the rest of the instrument. Um, truth time, I listen to the podcast. I listen every week. Um, I, I hear all the horrible things that you say, and I've catalogued them, and I will now retort to every single one of them. And I'll, no, um, <laughs> I really enjoyed um, the, the one that came out yesterday, the kind of birth of the dojo. And... Yeah. That, that kind of that, that there's a, a a line being talked about recently uh, about the technical ability, you know, and that like once you have a certain level of technical ability, you can play whatever you choose to play. What I think is interesting is this is especially in Scotland, right? Because what I feel like is uh, what happens here is, well, maybe not, maybe it's quicker than this, but it used to be whatever happened in Scotland ten years later would be getting replicated in the furthest points of the world. Right. Eventually, someone would go on holiday somewhere and explain something to someone. Whether that was taken on, you know, hundred percent verbatim or not, well, that's human nature. Um, but in the way that we're taught, and I'm very keenly aware of this just now. I teach a school program, and I, I'm like, look, to get into my band, you need to learn, need to play eleven tunes. But my job is not to get you to play eleven tunes. My job is to get you to play any tune you want to play. But to play in this ensemble and to meet the needs of the ensemble as a performance opportunity, you have to play that. But what I always say is, once you've got those 11 tunes, then we're going to start playing your tunes. And what I'll generally do at that point is say, oh, well, we're going to, um, we've got to make sure your, your performance fundamentals are right. You know, make sure the bagpipe remains steady. Because if the bagpipe's not steady, well, it's pointless. Because it won't sound good. Um, as my dear dad likes to say, a, a, a beautiful painting on a lumpy canvas is just a lumpy painting. Okay, mm. So you may have a music you want, but if the pipe's no right, it doesn't matter. Um, so, and they'll say, well, we, we'll need to get you something so you can start to learn to listen to the pipes. Well, why don't you start to try playing this? Here's the first line of Glengarry's Lament. And I never use the word Peabrook with them. Not mm. until they're already playing it. Right? Which I know <laughs> sounds underhanded, but I'd often think that the zeitgeist draws a big hard line between the two. And I'll tell you whose fault it is. Seamus McNeil's. Right? We owe Seamus a huge debt, right? <laughs> um, we do owe Seamus a huge debt. Seamus, go, Tommy go Houston, on, go on. 
Go on, Dan. <laughs> if we're talking about the, if we're talking about the Mount Rushmore of piping pedagogues, right? Well, there's three of them right there, right? Seamus McNeil, John McLennan, or McClellan, sorry, um, B. McFadden, and uh, Tommy Pearson. Absolutely, those four guys. Put them on top of that Mount Rushmore. There you go, right? Um, but I, I think it'd be hard to. But Seamus. How much can you swear on your podcast? I don't think I've ever heard you use, use an expletive. Um, Seamus talked a big game a lot. Oh, there you that go. That was just the style at the time. No swear words. Well done. Belt. <laughs> yeah, tried my best. You, you've actually turned your camera off just to, to hide yourself. Um, anyway, so Seamus uh, talked a big, big game. And he wasn't wrong all the time. All the time. But he would put things across in a very combative way, in a very, um, how do you even call it? He, 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 he liked to draw lines, you know, and say, this is good and this isn't good. You know, famously, uh, Gordon Duncan in the, 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 the knockout contest, um, yeah. if this is the way bagpipes are going, then I'm going to take up the fiddle. You know, great line, yeah. very clever. Yeah, very, very. <laughs> but what does that say? That tribalises the whole thing. You yeah. know, it's, it's us and them. No, no, no. It's just us, right? It's, it's everyone's uh, uh, as long as you pick up the pipe and put it on your shoulder. It doesn't matter if you're playing Lament for Donald Dougal Mackay or you're playing Amazing Grace. You are a piper and you are one of us. We are together. It is we, not them and us. Um, and I think having my experience of Peebrook growing up, the man that taught me you know, I started off had a cowl gold medal for Peebrook. Okay, it was for the, like the the nineteen thirties, but he still had it. And he would you know get taught by Peter McLeod Senior. Like there was a, but to me, I grew up in a pipe band, and it was such an alien concept. It was just such a, a useless thing. And when I think of the opportunities that I've had to learn from great players, and how off-putting it has been at times, mm-hmm. and how attritional it has been at times, I'm very, very careful as a as a, a, a tutor to make sure that it, the first peebrook that you play is going to take quite a while. Because you're going to feel like it's just like nothing you've ever done before. You know, because the lines don't go, a squiddly dee lady, a squiddly dee lady dum, a squiddly dee lady 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 dum. You know, and they, they don't always make sense that way. They do make a sense though. But once I think you've got the, the tools for how to absorb, how to interpret the music that's put in front of you, which is not linear, that's the mistake I think a lot of people make is. They think it goes right. There's line one, and you play he and re, he and re, he and tro, he and or, and repeat that, and then you go tro, edre. If I can remember, he edre, he or dri, he or tro, he or and right. As you learn the first line, you go wait, wait a minute, right? Hang on, what, what did you just sing at me? Because. Um, you must be sitting in the middle of that gym going, what what Caledonian nonsense was that? Right, uh, right. V- pretty, it's pretty nonsense, but... Uh, mm. Thank you, that's my specialty. Um, <laughs> so, but there is, lies the point. But if you say to somebody, look, this is, that was a Tullacard, right? Uh, the Mackenzie's March. Uh, like it's, it's either March or Gathering. It doesn't matter, you just call it Tullacard. Then the adjudicator can figure out which one you're playing. Um, mm. And... You know, it's got four pulses in the bar, and you end each each 
two-bar phrase with a cadence. Okay. Suddenly you start to go, right, well, I'm going, and one, two, and three, four, and one, two, and a three, four. And then you go, ah, right, okay, now that sounds mm-hmm. a lot more like what I've been taught to play in light music. Mm-hmm. Okay. Whereas very often, and, you know, God bless them, but the, the, the way that folk taught people probably up to in this century has always been, oh, you get it and you don't, son. Oh, he's not got the blasts in him. <laughs> Gaze peace. What <laughs> a lot of nonsense. Yeah. Um, there you go. That's, that's pretty, I, that, it's pretty interesting. I'm, it makes a lot of sense. I'm going to just say, uh, I'm not, I think you must have been joking when you said you're going to refute everything we've said in the podcast so far because it sounds like we're on a very similar page here. No, no, Andrew, I'm, I'm well known for absolutely being totally on the level, humorless, absolutely as dying <laughs> okay. as the grave all the time. Just, I was just making sure because, yeah, like I like the sounds of a lot of that. I think that, I think that the Seamus McNeil, I, I think that the Seamus McNeil thing is really quite interesting. And um, he was also one of the pioneers sort of bringing uh, bagpipe instruction to North America as well. If I'm not mistaken, right? He would have been. Absolutely, absolutely, of, yeah. And, and I, I sometimes wonder if our general, like, paralysis, like, insistence that uh, things are uh, the way that we were saying, that's not really totally positive. Like, you either have it or you don't. And Pebrock must be played exactly this way or you're just not getting it. And we sort of have that and I think it's getting better in the last decade or two, but we have that attitude uh, where it is like, it's like this very closed off thing that where, you know, unless you have the pedigree, you don't really belong and all that sort of thing. Um, that's probably where that originates from in in our society as well, which should be, I mean, like, I guess, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, you know, as red blooded Americans, we should be, you know, interested in expression and, and, not necessarily adapting Pebrock, but, you know, playing it with our own unique voice and style. Like, that should be something that's on the radar, and it's really not. And I've sometimes wondered why it is that way. Because, interestingly, you will see folks putting their own spin on things in Scotland quite a bit more than you'll see it here. I, I think that is true. Um, but the, the, the pedigree thing is interesting. So, Seamus, as a, a, a character... Right. I mean, bear in mind, he died in 1994, 95, 95. Mm-hmm. And yet, so, so the thing with the North American tuition, by the way, was really casual. The thing about the College of Piping was, it was the first inherently piping organisation to have an address. So folk would write letters to the College of Piping. You know, like 16 Otago Street, Otago Street, sorry, uh, Glasgow. Dear Mr. McNeil, I have read your periodical. Would you like to come to Nova Scotia and help sort my wee band out? Hi, sure, son. You, <laughs> dear so and so, I you buy the tickets. I'll be. I'll meet you at the bar at Glasgow Airport. Um, <laughs> and that was that's how it run. Donald McLeod, and, and this is this is a really interesting thing. Like, I, I get lessons off Willie McCallum, um, and lots of guys in the US and Canada get lessons off Willie. Willie's a phenomenal tutor, by the way. If any of these at a workshop, Willie's teaching that. I'd highly encourage you to take the time to even talk to him for 10 minutes. The man is, is an incredible human being. Willie um, will be on the dojo in, in May, I think. 
if I'm not mistaken. Just for a wee thing, if you'd like to get a, a flavoring. But, uh, Absolutely, I, would, I encourage anyone listening to, to take the time to go and hear what Willie's got to say. Um, yeah. But the, the, the thing is, see the, the, the tour that Willie does? Um, that tour was started in the 1960s with like Seamus and Donald McLeod and, and Ian McPadgett. Yeah. Um, and then John McDougall later on came in, whoever was available. John McDougall was, was uh, the headmaster of a, of a primary school, like a, a junior school. What would you call that? Um, ah, whatever, right? Oh. Not high school. Um, uh, elementary oh, school, maybe. There you go, uh, my dear Watson. That is correct. Or as they, or yeah. as they say in upstate New York, elementary school. Elementary school. Yeah. <laughs> elementary, <laughs> elementary school. Yeah, we. It sort of like points to the quality of schooling in upstate New York. <laughs> uh, I think it's upstate. It sounds like it should be quite good. There you go. Anyway, so John, John had the summer off. So John would go out for three weeks at a time. And then come back for a couple of weeks, then go out for three weeks at a time, and be back to Robin and Inverness when the schools went back. So he was like the perfect candidate to go and do it. Um, but it's, it's funny that that kind of route has evolved over the years, but the ideas are still there. Um, anyway, uh, so I think I do think there's some roots in that. This is the way it was taught to me. Is often the worst excuse that a pipe and shooter can give, because it sounds like I haven't thought about this at all. I don't really understand what it means. But this is the way it was given to me, so therefore it must be right. And mm-hmm. like, folk often point fingers at John McDonald of Inverness um, for, for being that way. But let's be in mind, the man was born in 1874. Like, the culture was, do as I say, not what I do. But old Johnny is on record multiple times for appreciating other ways of performing the tunes. Yeah, that's the you impression know, I have of him. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I was just saying that's the impression I have of uh, John McDonald of Inverness is just that he actually was quite open-minded and exp- and you know he's well known to have played tunes different ways throughout his lifetime as well. Totally, yeah. And, and we, the sad thing is we don't have access. Like there's some very very short recordings of. We're lucky in the Pipe Center to have access to, to some of this stuff. And there's some there's things you'll find online. There's actually a wealth of it on YouTube, but. The, the, the thing there is, like, when we talk about the differences in performance choices, the choice bit is the word that's that's really important here. If you rock up to, I don't know, uh, Grandfather Mountain, right, to play in the open peabrook there, right, and you say, I'm going to play Stroon Robertson's Salute, uh, Glengarry's Lament, or, I don't know, McCrimmon's Sweetheart. Uh, okay, uh, can you give us uh, McCrimmon's Sweetheart? I'm playing at the John McDonald setting. Okay, right, there's, there's a couple of minor changes there, that's fine. See whatever you're putting in there. You're looking for an accurate, consistent delivery of musical ideas. If you want to come off the boards and say, oh, they didn't give me a prize because they don't like the setting that I'm playing, but you've played it like a mad person would play music, then of course you're not getting anything because you've not stuck to the base ideas of music. Are you playing the ideas consistently? Is there clarity? Are you in control of the tempo? Are you using tempo as a decorative device? There's a thing in Peabrook we don't talk about enough. Tempo's a tool. It's not an absolute. In light music, we can say, all right, keep your 2-4 marches between 63 and 68 BPM, depending on the melodic structure. And you can do that. But it's all feeling Peabrook. You know, and some, some phrases 
will make you think, oh, this has to be a certain way, but they're not. And when you realise, oh, there is a, a rhythmic continuity inside these sometimes very oblique ideas, you go, that's where they're tied together. Not necessarily in this note to that note with this decorative device, but in this rhythmic idea to that rhythmic idea mm -hmm. to the other rhythmic idea. And you go, ah, it's, it's more than just a linear melody. It's, it's how you contrast with the drone. It's how you are, are able to create tension and release. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's what I'd say. I, I, I think having played a couple of non-standard settings and won some prizes with them and then not won some prizes with them, the thing that I can, I can say is the kind of dividing line between them is when I have played the tunes well, I have been rewarded. When I have not played the tunes well, I have been ignored. So what's the common denominator here? Playing the tunes well. And that's a whole discussion in itself about, right, well, what, what are the, the base tenets of playing music well? Clarity, consistency, control, the right note in the right place for the right amount of time, as dictated to you by the score or the setting or the arrangement that you are being uh, led through, you are being coached in. I think that... We've all we know we've not met that mark. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the the big challenges of having a culture that operates a lot in the competitive, you know, area. It's it's way easy. It's it's like so easy to accidentally invert the necessary stoic mindset, you know, where you know really we're all we're all just focused on the things we can control. Uh, and trying to do that the best that we can do on the day. And by the way, that's what's going to lead to someone who's successful, um, you know, over a large period of time in the competitive system. But it really does sort of degenerate into just complaining about what the judges said, doesn't it? And and I think that's a huge problem for Peabrock. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I, I doubt very many people could name great Peabrock players that were not competitors. You know, there there are some of them. There's quite there's quite a few of them actually uh, that sort of have have done really interesting things outside of the competitive area. But you know, pop culture, you know, pop culture Peabrock, for lack of a better term, is all you know. It's Jack Lee and Willie and Angus and uh, Fred Morrison maybe, uh, which and those guys are great players. But I guess what I'm saying is, it sort of like tricks you into thinking that it's only about impressing a judge. But that's not really what it is. No, no, I, I wholeheartedly agree there. Like, it's, it's got to be more than that. Like, it, ultimately, that right. I heard a story a, a month ago that I, I actually found really upsetting. Right, I really got my like, got me fuming about a certain judge saying to a certain competitor who happened to play in a certain band that has been very successful in the post-pandemic era um, you need to be concentrating on your piping son because you don't want to be remembered as just some guy that played in some pipe band you want to be remembered for winning the medals and my reaction is to go I want to be remembered fondly mm. yeah there are other options huh? <laughs> yeah like I mean, it'd be great to win the medals but like Andrew said it's not in my control all I can do is play the tunes to the best of my ability some days that ability is 100%, some days not so much. Um, but you're trying to make sure that there's more good days than bad days. You're trying to work on being a musician, being a performer. Um, and I think, again, I agree, if you are, you are um, activated that way, then you've probably got to play well more, more often than not. 
and that leads to the competitive success that you are looking for. Um, yeah. But just that attitude, and I think it's a very oldie worldy attitude from quite an oldie worldy guy that nothing matters unless you've got the medals. Like your opinion doesn't matter, your education in the art form doesn't matter, your experience doesn't matter unless you've got the prizes to back it up. And you go, well, do you know what? There's plenty of bent judges out there. There's plenty of of um, one-off players that that you know played against a field that had a bad day, right? And in fact, there are guys out there who've won both silver and gold medals who have said to me and say quite openly, "Folk, I got lucky. I just got lucky that day." Never, you know, the guys that should have won it actually, you know, they had a mistake. The pipes didn't hold. The sun came out halfway through their tune. Whatever. Um, now, I don't mean that to lessen anybody's achievement. I, I really don't. But what I'm saying is. You can't control that. You can only play the tunes. And for somebody, the thing that incensed me about that story, which, by the way, was told to me second-hand, so it could be a lot of old nonsense, but the idea of it, I thought, what are we doing this for? Like, I like to think I'm making the world a slightly better place by helping people to express themselves, enjoy themselves, and maybe learn a little bit about themselves as well. The things that nobody else can teach you, your, your bagpipe can teach you quite starkly, frankly. Um... And I like to think of myself as a signpost that way. I'm just a guide, right? I, I am I am the scarecrow, Dorothy. Um, some people go this way, some people go that way, but that way is the Emerald City. Um, I, I'm, that's, I'm sure wow, that's, that's some literary... That's Wow, that just flowed right off the tongue there, Dan. That was, it's that was beautiful. It's almost like I, I use that line several times a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it, sounds, but, is it, it sounds remarkably like the, the message of... Uh, Finding bagpipe freedom, though, doesn't it? That you know that this is a tool for artistic expression, right? Like that's there's some there's something there's something like sort of on a human level that that you want to be able to get it out, and this is a tool that you can use yeah. to get that out, and that it really goes beyond meddling, you know. Yeah, it's nice, right? But Andrew, how many times you won the worlds now? Twice. My, my life changed the first the the moment I won the worlds. My life totally changed, Dan. I, I can see that. I, I had a similar sort of experience. No, I'm lying. Yeah. And that's I'm how lying. I know. That's how I know that I will never be happy until yes. I win worlds. It's it's important. <laughs> it's important for everyone to know that happiness does lie on the other side of success. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this is what I'd say about it. Right, is um, winning the worlds lasted about an hour. Right, um, exactly. So you get, you get your 40 taken, you hold the trophy, you maybe have a wee greet, you phone up your parents, they don't believe you, you hang up on them, um, that sort of thing, right? And then about 45 minutes to an hour later, you're like, oh, hold my pipes, I need to go for a pee. Right. And then real life, <laughs> straight back in, right? <laughs> the realities of being a human being come back in. And do you know what, what I was? Uh, so let's say it's 7.05pm on the 15th of August 2015, uh, I was five foot nine, grossly overweight, and very unhappy with myself. See, at ten past ten that night, I was five foot nine, grossly overweight, very unhappy with myself, and quite drunk. Right? <laughs> That's <laughs> it. <laughs> now, the, the upswings were professionally, did it open some doors? I, I did. Okay, I, it, I'm sure it helped swing me get the job here. Working at the Pipe Centre, I met the woman that would become my wife. I, I had an opportunity to develop skills. Um, all that sort of stuff. But it didn't make me a better person. I've got to make me a better person. You've got to make you a better person. And hopefully using your bagpipe um, in a, a, a 
let's call it an important and positive way, whatever the music you play, whether it's light music, pure more, if you only play five tunes for the rest of your life, but if you try your best to play them well, will, hi, make your life better, you know, put you in a community of people that makes you happy to be around them. Um, and uh, there's plenty of guys I've met who've won Hee Haw, and they have a great time. They actually have a lot more fun playing pipes than I think mm. I've ever had. Yeah. I think <laughs> that... I think that winning the worlds is is um it's definitely symbolically very cool. Like it, but it's not about winning the world so much. It's just sort of like the cherry on, and it's the cherry on top of like a really really long process of uh you know really trying to develop yourself uh to become like you said to become better or or to to master something or to create something really really cool, and uh you know that's the big idea and so winning a gold medal sounds great but it's like winning the gold medal isn't about the status that you get from winning it it's just sort of like you know symbolic of actually achieve you know actually achieving those goals that you set out for yourself from the beginning and you know working to refine those tunes and seeing just how good you could get it wait dan what what's the word for the crown what do you call the crown in pbrook yeah, the Krenlua. Krenlua. Could we say could we say that um symbolically all of uh piping that you experience, you can have the ground and the, the twisty bit and the doubling bit and the lemwith bit, all, all the other bits. And when you get to the Kremlua, one you said there are different kinds of Kremluas, right? One of them is maybe winning at the worlds or getting gold medals but maybe there are other kinds of creme luas and really there are creme luas accessible to all pipers right am, am i am i bringing something together that's beautiful here is this exciting it's very sweaty, John, but i think you're getting something you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think, yeah, I think that's a all right you guys keep talking i'm gonna go get some more coffee here yeah um, yeah a pretty <laughs> artful way of putting it really yeah, I mean, it's, you know what it makes you think of is, uh, remember um, The Wedding Singer with Adam Sandler? Yeah, classic. And there's a wee old granny that raps at her, her grandson's wedding. Right. That's, that's a success, isn't it? That's, that's incredible. Here comes your, your old granny hip-hopping her way through, what was it? Ah, it doesn't matter what it was, right? But um, some 1980s sort of rap. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I, I think as a musician, you had to go that way. Like, God, the, the hours that I've spent practicing to get nowhere. You know, like practicing the wrong things. Um, yeah. I think there's a lot of experience. Like I said before, this instrument will teach you a lot about yourself, who you are, who you want to be. Um, to, to quote from one of the great films of the modern era, John Wick 4, the way you do Oh, don't spoil it. Don't. I haven't seen it yet. I'm a right. huge fan. I'm a huge fan of John Wick. If you like people walking through rooms hurting other people, this is the movie for you. <laughs> I think it's cool. It's really cool. Uh, by I, you know, John Wick. The John Wick films. The John Wick films are a lot like uh, masterfully played Pibrak. You know, like oh, now 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 who's trying to tie it all together? Well, just like I mean, work work with me here. I mean, like the 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 film is like the the film is beautifully ridiculously violent. Um, and like the the way that they do violence in the movie is so artistic and so cool and it's so seamless and the sound design and the film 
like the the quality of the shots and like even the quality of the plot it's very very simple uh but it's done so well it's like the finest it's like the finest gratuitously violent film you could watch um and it's it's so interesting right it it is, does actually remind me of Peabrock where like it's not complicated but by not being complicated you can experience like really really interesting types of nuance that you hadn't considered before minimalist hmm. Hmm. maybe maybe yeah, so- that was just a thought experiment i thought it came out all right that was a lot of work there was a lot of work to get to the end of that analogy i'll be perfectly honest with you <laughs> Um, but I see where you're going with it, and yeah, there you go, right? Well, so I, I feel like we're, we're trying to we're trying to get an ending here. We're desperately trying. No, to get an no, ending. it's we. This um, there's no, there are no ending. Not, there are no endings to these shows. You know, right. G- Jim used to, Jim usually has to like you know do some sort of bizarre green screen montage or something to get to get these to come uh, to a finish. Yeah. yeah. Well. Right. I'm trying to think if there's anything more useful that I can say about Peabrook performance that I haven't already said. Uh, well, Dan, I, I did I did want to give the, the normal Piper plug for Peabrook is for everyone, having just recently finished it myself. And I just wanted to, I, I just, I'd assume you've probably heard similar feedback already, but for me personally, like, themes that we've talked about today, like, up until now, for years I've been aware of Peabrook. But I've always felt like, maybe even unable to quite articulate this, but I've always felt like there was a certain level of sacredness around Peabrook. Mm. And unless I did it exactly right, I couldn't do it at all. And that was daunting, somewhat overwhelming even, you know. And, and just like the title suggests, coming away from your book, it makes me feel a bit more like, no, Peabrook is for everyone, right? Like, I can exp- I can dive into that. And like, even if... Where before I felt like if I'm not doing it perfectly, I can't do it at all. Well, now I feel like, you know what? There are a couple that I want to learn, and I might, I might never show anybody. But I'm going to learn them for the sake of me hearing what my instrument sounds like with, the, you know, with those chanter notes bouncing off those drone notes. You know, Because like, now, I, I don't know, there's a certain level of freedom that I now feel to give it a try. Imagine you know? if the opposite, like, I would just, just like, I, I agree with that so much, and I sometimes like, to uh, play games like imagine just like flipping it all around and take something like uh we would call it soccer but you would call it football elsewhere in the world imagine if you said like soccer is only for a select few who get it like imagine how ridiculous that would sound or like or you know or reading is just for rich people you know uh that maybe that used to be the case but it's sort of been proven it's not the case anymore and I think P-Rock is just one, another one of those things where we, we have this misguided idea of what it really is. Uh, but I think P-Rock absolutely is for everyone. I think that, I like to think that if you wandered around, you know, the, the Gaelic regions of Scotland, like, you know, uh, before Culloden, you'd probably find a lot of people just wandering around kind of humming a piece of a P-Rock or something, or maybe... Or, or maybe experimenting with some possible variations that could come off of a, you know, commonly understood melody or something. Dan, am I way off or, or what? No, I think I think you're right. I, I think that, well, okay, right. Have you got your tinfoil hat handy? Um, Always. <laughs> the, the early 20th century, the end of the Victorian sort of era, um, dead cool to be Scottish, right? 
Um, it was unlike train spotting. It was cool to be Scottish. Very yeah. pop culture heavy. Yeah? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> um, so, I it was very cool to be it. Lots of very wealthy, um, educated in English suddenly finding themselves Scottish landed gentry kind of types. Yeah. Wanted to yeah. really get into being Scottish. Right up for being Scottish, right? Um, so they would do things like uh, start a Highland Games, you know, end of the Industrial Revolution, well, end of the first wave of the Industrial Revolution in 1840, you start seeing weekends become a thing, depending on where you are in the world. Some Some cultures couldn't afford to have a day off where they would have days where they did less, things like that. Um, bear that in mind, by the way, see all this, the Sabbath stuff? That was like, I, you, you, you go to church on a Sunday morning and then you go back to work, right? Like, you know, seven days on, no breaks. Anyway, but like, you know, they started to hold like fairs and fets and Highland Games and all that sort of stuff based off of Gaelic or Gallic traditions. Or the, the word that, that absolutely grinds my gears is Celtic. The word oh, Celtic oh, Cel- you mean Celtic? Y- yeah, you uh, mean Celtic, I right? I mean Celtic. Nobody else that works here means Celtic. <laughs> See, Celtic um, is a whole different thing in Glasgow, right? Yeah, you definitely... Ne- sure never mind. Wonderful. Um, I, I, I recently went to, to view houses. I'm trying to buy a house. I'm, I'm this off of buying one. And then we went to see see one in Parkhead, which is where the, the, the Celtic stadium is. And literally, you could see the Jockstein stand from the front door of this. And I was my wife and went, that's a sign from God. That's what that is, right? <laughs> Said to the boy, we'll, you'll be hearing from it. We never, never heard from him. <laughs> a beautiful house, though. Just, it was a budgetary issue. It wasn't that my wife's family are all kind of Mad Rangers fans. But there you are. Um, <laughs> anyway, so um, that word Celtic was kind of coined by the, the Cambridge Dictionary by like guys like J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, like, they weren't Scottish at all. They no, no business in anywhere else but England. But they were there going, I see that area over there on the map, aye, that bit there, the one with all the wee hairy people. That's, they're the Celtic regions, aye. And then some other xenophobe looked at, like, northwestern France and Spain and went, well, oh, wee hairy people over there as well, we'll call them Celtic too, eh? But these cultures <laughs> that are thousands of years old were like, hang on a minute, we're the Gale. You get our own thing here, right? You don't classify us as anything else. Yeah. Um, and that community music, right? If you go to Dunvegan Castle and say to the curator, here, mate, where are the McCrimmon pipes? Where are the fairy pipes? They'll show you a set of pipes that parts of those pipes are over 200 years old, parts of those pipes are over 600 years old. Because who was making pipes? It was like a set, right? So there'd be very, <laughs> very... Everybody's sharing their community set. <laughs> and you'd be singing the tunes. So Andrew's absolutely yeah. right. I think that the, the, the music would be much more popular because there wasn't anything else, right? So, the, the, but it, see, we go, the Kjolmoa, the tunes of our fathers. No, yeah. right. It was just pipe music, Pibruch, pipe music, right? So you would sing it the same way you'd sing it. Though if you were down the tavern quaffing ale, Right, uh, you and Big Hector in there, firing back the ale, talking about sheep farming or whatever, and some boys in the corner giving it the big jigs on the fiddle, saying, you know, the 17th, 18th century. He'd walk out the door, try to whistle it, and maybe you'd take it back home and try it on your pipes. And by the same token, you know, I, I think it, it's like Alan MacDonald, um, the, the great Alan MacDonald, um, what a phenomenal musician, you know, somebody who 
I've tried to pick his brains and I'll be honest, I get stuck about halfway in. Um, <laughs> knows more about Peabrook, I think, than, than even the most sort of advanced Peabrookologist because he has a certain viewpoint because he comes from a certain culture. And in his master's thesis, he basically reckons that the your Campbells of Kilberry and your Macleans of Pennycross and the original Peabrook Society destroyed what they anglicised Peabrook. They took it away from what it was. Now, do I agree with that in terms of performance? I don't know, right? And I'm not going to know. One way or another, it's not the music that I've been taught to play, it's not the music I compete with, and it's not the music that I teach. But I try to teach people that you can do other things with it. But if you're going to compete, then, well, there's a certain way you perform that music. Um, but when you look at that early Peabrook Society and the work they did, they did incredible work to collect and preserve, but they also changed a lot of stuff around, moved bits mm. and pieces there. Um, and that's why, like, uh, I the, think the first I, volumes of the Peabrook Society, sorry. The Peabrook Society was like like version one of ChatGPT, I think, you know? They, oh. they they took all the settings and they uh and they 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 channeled it all into one sort of like like absolutely authoritative version and in an artificially intelligent way no i'm just kidding that was just a little joke uh, i'm sure they were very intelligent but i think that can kind of make sense though it, it makes me think of like i've heard people relate like any any art form that like has a history and like has like any sort of like mm, hierarchy of like ivory tower people who say like this is how it ought to be, like there's this idea that like if you go back far enough, any of these traditions, you might even say like pipe music, Peabrook, right? It's like a volcano has erupted, and as long as the lava is flowing, it's a living tradition, like it's a living art form that can shift and it's amorphous and it can change and stuff. But eventually, that lava cools and becomes a solid rock. And then you have people who treat that like it must be exactly like this. And we even collectively forget that it was once flowing. It was once in movement, right? Mm -hmm. And if you chip away at the hardened parts on the outside, you might find a hot core inside that can still move around and is still living. Does that feel at all applicable, Dan? I, I think so. I, I think that Peabrook's actually far more malleable culturally than we give it credit for. Uh, or maybe it ought, maybe that's just in my own mind it's not malleable, well, right? But yeah, it was just what I was saying before. When I first got into Peabrook, um, when I was a, a child and got kind of frog-marched into trying to play it, and I was bloody awful at it, by the way. Um, I didn't. I, 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 for me, it was that you, you're either doing it right or you're doing it wrong. There is no in-between. There's no development. But see, so for the Peabrook Society, I, I did a talk at the end of 2021 about the Tune the King's Taxes. For the kind of online talk seminar thing, Talk Peabrook, that's what it was called. Uh, and they're still available. You can find it on the Peabrook Society website. Um, I'm about £15 slimmer at the time. Please look it up. I looked great. Uh, so <laughs> Condolences. In it, in it, I went through the, the Peabrook Society archive, the recorded archive, and I took performances of the King's Taxes from about 70 years' worth of players. And what I did is I went from Bob Brown, right, one of the Bobs of Balmoral, to one of his direct pupils, Andrew Pitkeithley, right, a, a director of Army Bagpipe Music and gold medal winner, who's a f Andrew Pitkeithley's writings, by the way, if you ever get your hands on them, incredible. The guy's insight into how to play the music was brilliant. Um, and then Murray Henderson, who's a kind of adjunct of the Bobs of Balmoral, right? He went to uh, Jimmy McIntosh, who went to the Bobs, right? So from Murray Henderson all the way down to Bob, Bob Brown, there's a line. And all three of the men play that tune totally differently. 
Hmm. So now, when I say totally differently, they don't change the melody notes, and there is there is a format, but the nuance, the way they play it, and I would argue actually, the way Murray plays it is probably the best because I think it's the most obviously musical. Like there's just we the, the descriptions that I gave at one point is the floral nature of Murray's technical work enhanced hmm. every aspect of the tune. Right, and he had. Okay, it's a more recent recording, so his pipe was was a bit better, right than the other two. Um, like Bob Brown's recording, uh, it's a BBC archive, so it would be done on tape to tape. So was he told you've got to play in a, a nine minute tune, but you've only got seven minutes to do it, and that's why it sounds a bit frantic? Or mm. you know, like Andrew Pukitli's one, that was really real, done in his office at Edinburgh Castle. Like, is that uh, well, maybe the acoustics weren't the best in the world anyway, huh? I mean, even the way he plays it, is he is he recorded it on a wet Tuesday for somebody that's going on the Pike Majors course to go away and learn? Like, mm -hmm. there's, I think I think performance context is a big thing. You know, we all want to, to do it the same way every single time, but, like, who's to say that those first two recordings that weren't done in a, a, a competitive situation weren't, weren't a bit phoned in? We don't a, know. We just don't know. It's a bit, mm. uh, it's a bit like Plato's Cave, isn't it? It's like... I, I think that I think the availability of recordings and the availability of people uh, to teach far and wide has really democratized how we think about P-Rock as well. And uh, and it's fascinating, isn't it? But whereas before, I think you would have to take someone's word for it. This is exactly how it is. So it's a lot easier to say, oh, I am the authority on this tune because I went to the Bobs and the Bobs went to you know, John McDonald and John McDonald was connected to John McHire, however it went. Right. And it's like, now it's much more difficult to say, I am the authority on this. And it's far easier to say, actually, the way I played is based on, on this, you know, and you can sort of actually listen to the, uh, you know, you can actually listen to the different ways this tune can be played really, really well. I think that's a good mm. thing. I think that's a really good thing. And by the way, it's probably, uh, and by the way, just talking about Murray's bagpipe, you know, I think that reinforces an earlier point that you made where, you know, uh, you want that canvas to be, you know, as good as it can possibly be in order to make that great painting. So it's not for nothing. And I think an interesting place to venture toward concluding here might be that Pibrock is and Pibrock playing and Pibrock culture is in great shape right now relative to where it has been. Hmm. Oh, absolutely. I think even just the, the kind of popularization, the proliferation of it in our kind of pop media for piping. And nothing in piping happens immediately. It's all slow, right? But big music society, um, the amount of people getting played by pipe bands now on the regular, um, which is a whole separate conversation about adjudication that I don't want to get into until after this season's finished. But um, the the... The, the fact that, that we've got a player base across the grades that is well educated enough where you can go, right lads, we're going to play uh, the Groot, right? We're going to play a bit of the Groot in this medley. And everybody goes, all right, no bother, we can do that. Mm. <laughs> I think that's testament to generations of really, really good tuition, but also testament to people who are willing to pick the ball up. People like you, Jim. Really, Jim, you're the hero in this story. Hey. <laughs> uh, Jim's going to play a P-Brock on the next episode. 
of uh, <laughs> dojo conversations. I'll have, I'll have Castle Menzies ready to go. <laughs> Mengus. Castle Mengus. Mengus. Yeah. Hey, I, I actually, says- I, I, I was aware of that, but I, I thought to myself, like, I don't want to look pretentious and, and pretend like the Z is a G. We're so. <laughs> playing Peter get the brown brogues on, get the Balmoral to the side. Yeah. This is pretentious, it's like, this is pretentious music. So I, I was listening to a thing this week about, about, um, how how words get anglicized and uh, Menzies mm. is Mingus, but we used to have like a like a uh, a news agent in in the UK called John Menzies. He never said I'm popping into John Mingus for a Lucas yeah. aid and a pack of painkillers because I was out too late last night. He said to go to John Menzies. Um, yeah. Yeah. There you go. It's right, a lo- it's a lost cause. <laughs> no one and no one will ever pronounce contra. Uh, controversy correctly again. It's always going to be coming. Yeah. <laughs> but again, see, you know what's funny there, right? So talking about like how the tunes are played and why they're played mm. that way. You know, a little turn here, a little turn there, and over time that becomes the thing. I, 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 I had a great version of this explained to me, right? And it's one of the like urban myth things, right? But uh, apparently, in the late 1970s, uh, Yale University ran a study on behavioral cycles using chimpanzees. Have you heard this one? Go on. Maybe, but carry on. We never, it's we never stop anyone. We never stop anyone from talking about chimpanzees on this show. No way, man. <laughs> Hard and fast rule. You don't want to run into a chimpanzee. They'll have the face off you. Like that. Anyway, so they had this chimpanzee enclosure in the middle of it, bolted to the ground with a step ladder leading up to the, the ceiling where there was a hatch in the ceiling. Okay. And what they would do is, bunch of chimpanzees, little bikes, hats, all that sort of stuff, um, cutting about inside the enclosure, and at a certain time every day, the hatch would open, and a bunch of bananas would be put down. They'd close the hatch, chimpanzees would run up the ladder, grab the, the, the bananas, chimpanzee fun time, right? They'll have a banana, do whatever they do, right? Uh, make primitive tools out of things. Anyway, um, so they do this for a couple of months, and everything's cool, cool right? Not, these chimps are having a great time. Then one day what happens is, it hits banana time. The hatch opens. A chimp runs it up and instead of getting bananas, he gets it right in the face with a fire hose. <laughs> and goes flying off the thing. Monkey pandemonium. Okay, mental. Um, they spray down the whole group. Close the thing up. And then the next day, the hatch opens, a monkey starts to climb the step ladders. Bang! There with the fire hose. They do that for a couple of weeks, right? And eventually, every time you open the hatch, it's yeah, terrible. Yeah, poor chimps. <laughs> right. Well, don't worry. They were imaginary, so it doesn't matter. Um, okay, good <laughs> thing, because I'm, I'm, just, I'm just thinking, like, Planet of the Apes starts, and those people with the fire hose are going to be the first ones to go, I'm sure. <laughs> so, but it's a comment on, on human nature. So what happens is, mm. eventually the hatch opens and the chimps run away. They don't go anywhere near it. And that saves them getting hit with a fire hose. So, a wee while later, a new chimp from another group is brought into the fold, right? He comes in with, like, I don't know, a, I don't know, right, a, a fur jacket and, like, a big tray of cookies. And he's accepted by the rest of the chimps. Um, and the uh, the hatch opens. And a bunch of bananas is put on top of the, the stepladder. So the new chimp goes for it. And the other chimps jump him and maul him. They attack the new chimp who's doing this thing. 
because in their minds, going up the stepladder mm. only results in violence and failure and defeat. So it's easier to bring this one guy down than it is for everyone to ascend together. And that's the moral of the story, right? People are bloody awful and they will stand on your throat to get in front of you. Or you can all just decide to climb the ladder yourselves together as one to make the choice as a group to say we can do whatever we plan to do, whatever we want to do. This is just an art form. We're not talking about <laughs> taking over the capital. We're talking about playing pipes for enjoyment, for goodness sake. But when it comes to the music, we can put these imaginary roadblocks in to say like, oh, well, so-and-so doesn't like it when I play that tune that way. And by the way, so-and-so might be the sort of so-and-so that likes folk to think that he's well-educated enough to know the bloody difference. Chances are, mm. if they're talking like that, they don't. They... And like, some folk are going to be listening to this going, he's fearless saying these things. What are you going to do, right? Never give you a prize again. Can't be winning any prizes anyways, doesn't really matter. Like, <laughs> try to play the tunes well. It has, has to be its own reward. And even, like, that, that idea of, you know, going against the grain, going against the fashion. Well, I mean, by how much, right? Unless you're going to turn up the silver medal and have, like, sparklers coming out your drones, you're not going to be doing particularly much different from anybody oh, else. I want to write that down. That's a good idea. <laughs> um, roller skates. Uh, that, that's yeah. the move. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry. So, I, I always think that, that we... What would you call that? It's not an anecdote. The fable, that wee Aesop's fable about the chimps is like, yeah, you might find yourself in a situation where trends have changed and you holding on to what you know, what you believe to be the correct way of doing things isn't positive. And what we have to do as human beings is make the choice to go, right, will we change because it's the right thing to do to change or will we change because everybody else has said you should do that? Mm. And that, I mean... How many after school specials have you watched about the same thing? Uh, so don't believe the hype is what I'm really saying. Do the research, listen to your tutor, put the yards in to play the music the best of your ability. So, I mean, earlier in in the episode, you know, I accused the uh, early Hebrew Society of being like version one of ChatGPT. I was, I was just kidding, but it sounds like I, the, to wrap this up. You think that the you know current Peer Rock Society is just a bunch of chimps? If I'm understanding correctly, <laughs> this is this is Andrew trying to go like, okay, maybe I said something inflammatory, but I'm gonna make it so Dan said something even more inflammatory. Yeah, oh. <laughs> member of the current Peer Society. I, I, I speak at the lecture. Oh, <laughs> oh, so you are I, the chi- I, you are one of the chimps. That's right. I am the man. I am the oh, man. You no. are sticking it to. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. Like, look, I pay my 20 quid a year like everybody else, right? I have a tie. Uh, no, uh, well, here's the thing, right? If you go to the Peabody Society conference, it's not, I don't know what we say, it's, it's, it's not, it's a bunch of people who are really, really passionate about the music and yeah, really well informed. So. You will find, if you go to, to speak at that, that conference, the dialogue back and forth between the audience and the speaker is excellent. These are not the people trying to hold anybody back. These are the people trying to inform and support. When it come, if you're talking about like tune choice for the medals or something like that, look, I have no insight on that, frankly. Uh, other than there's a statistical 
standard of tune. There's a set styles of tune that they are going to pick all the time because they meet a technical and musical standard that is deemed by the current music committee to be the standard required for the medals. Um, and year on year that changes because the committee's not the same year on year. Right. You know, it, that, that's a whole thing in its own right. Like who gets to be on that committee? Because you're having it full of guys that have won the class. So maybe know the best group because a lot of a lot of pipers can be athletic. So they've learned the big tunes and play them impeccably well. But if you said to them, what's the historical significance of uh, the bicker? They'd look at you and go, I won myself a medal with it. <laughs> so, um, and I think go, that, well, um, so you need to have a mix. Yeah, I was, you know, all joking aside, uh, you know, about all this stuff. And, and it is fun to joke about because people are very sensitive about it. But, uh, but all joking aside, I mean, I think that it would be interesting to hear your take on this, Dan, but it's quite possible that without the original Peabrock Society, uh, you know, the art form may well have been lost. You know, may, maybe they were onto something or, or certainly uh, or, or it would have been somewhat lost. And then there's no question. And I said it once, but I'll reiterate it because I just don't want uh, this podcast to come off like I'm making uh, off-colored jokes about the way things are going. I mean, I think that the existent Peabrock Society and all of the institutions surrounding it have led to, I think, a huge renaissance of Peabrock. I mean, it's easy to be negative at times, but it's hard. It's very hard not to be extremely positive. Um, you know, at the dojo, we've got lots of people excited to learn their first tune next month, um, and that's just one example of how how Peabrock has really sort of like started to thrive over the last decade or so. Uh, people have taken a real interest in it. And I think that like the, I think Peabrock is going that way, not that way. It's going out, up, up and out. So uh, yeah, I think that's kind of exciting. And, and uh, you know, it takes a, it takes a village or in this case, maybe a globe of people to, uh, to keep it going. And, and uh, there's, there's always going to be, there's always going to be negatives uh, that you could that you could fixate on, but I think it's probably more important to focus on the positive. Okay. I think that's it. Did I do it? Did I win the Did I win the end of the podcast? I think you win. <laughs> I was going to say I was going to lean in and go. Uh, if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this podcast, please contact us at piperscojo@gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you send well, uh, Dan, I just, I want to make Sorry. sure everyone, everyone gets, I want to make sure everyone gets it right because we want to make sure emails go to the right place. So it's always, if you ever have criticisms, just email bigrabshow at gmail.com. That's where they go. That's it. Hey everybody, Andrew Douglas here from the Piper's Dojo. And I just want to say thanks so much for listening to today's iteration of the podcast if you enjoyed what you heard here today, it would be super helpful to us and to a lot of bagpipers out there trying to find us. If you could give us a top-notch review on whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast, particularly Apple, iTunes, and Spotify, and things like that, your review would be really, really helpful. So if you have a moment today, definitely go over there and help us out. Other than that, until we meet again on the podcast or somewhere else, thanks again for listening.